Rail safety impacts not just workers, but the community can have extreme impact on the environment. And this is the time for the citizens of Colorado to speak up and demand that their uh, legislators and the governor uh, support rail safety, uh, take steps to protect them. And, you know, these are common sense steps to prevent uh, or mitigate future accidents. This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild, Local 37074. Today, we're talking about the railroads again. We have Carl Smith with Smart Transportation Division. Carl is a railroad brakeman switchman, currently serving as the Colorado State Legislative Director for Smart Transportation Division. Hi, Carl. Uh, welcome back to the Labor Exchange. Hi, Robert. Thanks uh, for having us again. Uh, happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. We like to get to know our guests. I know you started on the railroad in the 90s and grew up in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, and I also know you have some deep family ties to the railroad. So I wanted to ask you, what what is your you know first experience or memory involving the railroad? It- I remember my dad taking me to the roundhouse in Pueblo where he worked, which wasn't round. <laughs> the old Rio Grande roundhouse had burned down and was something different. But I remember him taking me to the roundhouse when I was really little and showing me locomotives and cabooses. And I was very fascinated with the caboose. Yeah. What fascinated you about the caboose? I didn't understand what, what the caboose was. I didn't understand why they had bunk beds in there, why there was a stove, why there was a phone, how the phone worked. Uh, I, I didn't understand what the caboose was. Right. And my dad wasn't very good at explaining to me what the caboose did and what purpose it served. But I I remember that I was very interested in in seeing the caboose and always wanting to go to the they call it the caboose track or the clean out track where they clean the cabooses. And I always wanted to go over there and, and see the cabooses and be around the caboose. Yeah, well, and it's funny. I was just up in Netherlands visiting the the Carousel of Happiness up there, and there's a coffee shop made out of an old caboose. And so I had actually had mentioned some of our conversations to my kids about that. And real quick, what's the purpose of the caboose? Well, so the caboose was originally the rear end marker of the train in the days of of old before signal systems. The caboose had was the marker of the rear of the train. And it also at night had a lantern. You, the, before electricity, they would hang the lantern on the caboose. That was the marker at night. Uh, so a train, in theory, did hit, hit it from the rear end at night. You could see it. Uh, the caboose was where the conductor uh, did all the paperwork. The conductor was in charge of all the, the rail cars. So he had all the way bills, the bills of lading, switch lists. Did they pick up cars? And then that's where also the rear flagman was that protected the train. So when the train was stopped on the main without us in, in what they call dark territory, the rear flagman was supposed to walk two miles to the rear from the caboose and put down a few Z's and what they call torpedoes to stop, to alert another train that was coming, that there was a train stopped on the main. Um, and so then, you know, that evolved that the, the head brakeman was on the locomotive. The rear brakeman was with the conductor on the caboose. 
And so work that needed to be done on the train, whether it was switching or tying handbrakes or you had an air hose or some kind of mechanical failure, the theory was the head brakeman walked from the head end back and the rear brakeman or the conductor walked from the caboose forward. You met in the middle or you met at that location and you had two, two men, which was men basically, but two people to do, to do the work. If you were doing switching, yeah, the, it, was, it was all around. There was an air gauge on the rear of the caboose so the conductor could see the air on the, the train. And also there was an emergency brake valve. So the conductor could pull the air or the rear brakeman if the train was running away, if the train was speeding. Yeah, they could pull the, pull the air, pull the brake valve and put the train in emergency. Okay, great. Yeah, well, and and thinking about that, in some ways, it was a lot of the early safety measures to make sure that you could mark the back of the train. See, I always thought it was sort of like the bunkhouse when. Well, and and so yeah, I'm 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 thinking of of my side of it. You know, the cupola was used. That's where the brakeman or the conductor was supposed to sit and observe the train. So to make sure that there was no dragging equipment, there wasn't smoke coming from the axles. There wasn't a hot bearing or a roll of bearing. They hadn't derailed. All those things were what the, the people on the rear of the caboose did. Then, you know, in addition, there was the, the bed, the bunk beds, and that's where the trainmen. So the conductor and the brakeman at their away from home terminal slept in the caboose up until 1971 or 72 when we got the, the lodging agreement. Um, so you know, a, a story that was told to me by an old Rock Island brakeman. He used to work out of Harrington, Kansas, to Kansas City on the Rock Island. And they worked in the caboose. They got to Kansas City into the big, large classification yards of Kansas City, of Armandale, of Argentine yards, second largest rail, rail terminals in the country behind Chicago. And their train would be switched into the track with the caboose. And they would be sleeping in the caboose trying to get their rest for their return trip home. So, you know, it was <laughs> it, it wasn't necessarily a safe, great situation at all the time. But yeah, it, up until 1972, it was the lodging for the train crew. Now, the engineers and firemen had a different <laughs> lodging agreement, but, but conductors and brakemen up until 71 or 72 slept on the caboose. Yeah, yeah, I find that really interesting, and yeah, maybe not the safest place to sleep in a train yard then or now. Um, well, yeah, because the, the caboose would be handled like it would be switched with box, just like box cars, and so you know, then little old rivalries of of so at that time the switchmen were in a separate union, uh, the brakemen and the conductor actually were in separate unions. The switchmen were in the Snakes, the switchmen of North America. The brakemen were in the BRT, the Brotherhood of Railroad Trainmen. And the conductors were on the order of railroad conductors and baggage hand. As you had mentioned when we were talking about the caboose, you talked about that this that was one of the ways to detect a hot bearing. And so to pull this into our conversation today, I wanted to maybe if you can talk about some of the ways in which hazards on the railroad, such as dragging equipment or hot bearings, are detected currently. Yeah, the the way train hazards are detected currently is is what's called a wayside detector or a trackside detector. So that's equipment that's installed on the track that 
is either single purpose or multi-purpose equipment. So some of the equipment is installed to detect dragging equipment. If there's something dragging from the train or perhaps a, a train car is derailed, a wheel is derailed off the track, the dragging equipment detector will detect that. Oftentimes they're consolidated into what's called a hot box detector or a hot bearing detector, where that's detecting the heat of the wheels and it, it does the whole train, it detects the wheels. And then if there's an anomaly where a set of cars are hotter than the rest of the train, then that it gives a warning out to that, that the, there's a potential warning. Usually the dragging equipment and hot box detectors, there's usually more dragging equipment detectors, but generally a hot box and dragging equipment detector are put together. And then there's, you know, there's some other types of detectors. There's a a shifted load detector, which around here is really important because we have lots of tunnels in the mountains. So that detects if a load is shifted that can potentially hit the walls of a tunnel. So that you don't always see that in a lot of places, but we do. We did have them here. My guest today is Carl Smith with Smart Transportation Division. We're talking about rail safety here in Colorado. There is upcoming legislation that will be introduced here uh, at the start of the legislative session. Carl, Let's set the stage at what's been happening around rail safety in Colorado. And unfortunately, that means bringing up the the deadly train derailment that happened outside Pueblo last year, late last year, causing a bridge to collapse over I-25. Can you start by explaining that incident and a bit into the investigation into what happened? Sure, Robert. Well, I can't give a lot of specific details. A lot of it's still speculation because the National Transportation Safety Board is still investigating. They haven't come out with their final conclusions yet. They did make a preliminary statement that they believe that the cause of the bridge collapse was because a a train derailment caused by a broken rail proceeding in advance of the, the bridge. So yeah, they're still investigating all the cause of that, what caused the broken rail. So, you know, broke, lots of things can break rail, believe it or not. This big steel, but lot, lots of things can, can break that. But one of the primary causes to cause rail to break is flat wheels. So how, you get flat wheels by brakes, by, by the brakes, setting the air brakes, the, the pressure of the brake. And I know I'm using my hands for a radio show, but... You can get that's where you can get the flat wheels as those flat wheels on all those on those rail cars are banging that rail. Then you can start getting weak spots as that weak spot expands, especially on warm days where the sun is hitting on that steel and warming it up in in the Pueblo Desert. And then on cold nights where it makes a cold, it, it makes it brittle, almost like, believe it or not, almost like spaghetti. And so many times flat wheels are ultimately the cause of a broken rail. So, uh, you know, the hot box detector or, or a detector detecting flat wheels, which they have, that's another form of detector. If, if those detectors are active and on and alerting the crew that they have defects, those cars can be potentially inspected and maybe need to be set out to uh, prevent further damage to the rail or the train speed slowed down to get them to a terminal where those cars could be repaired. Um, Like I said, this is all speculation. Uh, The the initial cause of uh, is broken rail, but what broke that rail? And, you know, then there's requirements by the federal railroad administration 
on railroads to inspect their their lines daily, weekly, depending on how much traffic, how many tons uh, are, are moved over, if there's passengers on that traffic. So that also comes into play. Uh, was the track inspected? How often was it inspected? When was it last inspected? I, I don't have that right in front of me, but I believe they said that that track had been inspected that morning. So, you know, what all, all that comes into play, you know, and sadly, somebody completely unconnected to the railroad lost his life. A truck driver just driving along with that bridge collapsing and those 32 rail cars, each weighing probably in excess of 130 tons a piece collapsing on top of him. Yeah. And I think it, it hit close to home just because that's a, a bridge that in some ways was a monument to me. I mean, I remember driving under it so often on my way to and from Pueblo when I was living down there and visiting family back up north. And, you know, I called it the I Love Heather Bridge because that was some graffiti that wasn't there when it collapsed. It had been removed. But and and yeah, we do want to recognize the the sacrifice that our truck drivers make just hauling freight. And, you know, as a gentleman from California and hearing some of the stories from his family, you know, is just that incredibly unfortunate happenstance to be the one who was who was underneath it at the time at the time the accident happened. I'm get I, I'm going to guess that you have even less detail you could share on the most recent derailment I heard about in Fremont County. But if you can talk at all about that one as well, sure. Yeah, that's that railroad is actually the the railroad that derailed. Uh, I believe it was 23 cars of rock uh, is actually operated by the Rockin' Rail, Railroad. Um, and we don't, they're not represented. They're a short line railroad. They're, they don't have union representation, so we don't know a lot about them. But also uh, that was, uh, they run on, they have track rights on Union Pacific Track. That's Union Pacific Track. So they operate their trains on Union Pacific Track. And from what I understand, it was a broken rail uh, that caused that derailment as well. Yeah. And if you could just for our listeners, maybe describe the difference between a short line railroad and, and a main line. Is that the correct term? Sure. A, a short line or a class two or class three and a, a class one is going to be the big railroads. Union Pacific, BNSF, those are your class one railroads. Those are your major railroads. Then the class twos and class threes, those are going to be short line. Generally, they bought a branch or are leasing a branch of a railroad. And it's just a smaller operation that the the class one railroad deemed it wasn't it wasn't profitable for them to operate. But the you know the according you know there's laws and interstate commerce, the Surface Transportation Board, the Staggers Act that have to give uh, customers and rail customers access to to rail service. So they can't just abandon these lines very easily uh, when they still have. Uh, rail customers in there. So that's where the motivation for railroads to, to basically sell or at least these branch lines out uh, to smaller operations that then try to squeeze some sort of profit out of that. Usually they try to squeeze that profit out of it by cutting maintenance, cutting costs, cutting wages, all those, all those scenarios. So the Colorado Transportation Legislation Review Committee has been working with you all at Smart Transportation Division on legislation for this upcoming year. Can you describe a little bit about that legislation and and what what's what it's about? Sure. Yeah. The 
the Rail Safety Act is basically what it is. And we went through the Transportation Legislation Review Committee, which is a joint committee with the Colorado House and the Colorado Senate. Uh, We had three hearings on it. And basically, they looked at this legislation, potential legislation, and felt that this was important for rail safety in Colorado. Uh, These elements of this bill were important for rail safety in Colorado. So there's several elements to it. Uh, One of the elements is requiring uh, hot box and dragging equipment detectors every 10 to 15 miles that will communicate with the crew on the train. And right now, a lot of the railroads have uh, set their hot box detectors only to notify their operations center when there's a defect. And then it's up to the operations center to disseminate that information down to the train that actually has that car on their, on the crew that actually has that car on their train. Uh, so our requirement in this bill would require more detectors be installed, trackside detectors, detecting dragging equipment and, and hot axles, hot journals, and actually notify the train crew by the, the, the radio, radio frequency that they're on, that they have a defect and allow them to inspect it to prevent to prevent major derailments and major accidents. So that's, that's one bullet. Uh, another aspect is uh, reducing train length or, or minimizing train length to, in the state of Colorado for hazardous material to 8,500 feet. Uh, you know, right now, the railroads, Union Pacific, BNSF, the class ones are easily running 10,000, uh, 12,000, sometimes 15,000 foot trains. They're, they're running 13,000 foot coal empties. So that's basically two trains put together, a couple miles together, 13,000 feet, almost three miles. So we feel that's unsafe. All that, that slack that adds to what we, we consider wear and tear on the equipment and on the rail, which le- is leading to more derailments. So we're, we brought that part into it. Then we also limit the time a, a railroad can block a crossing to 10 minutes, right? There's numerous examples, lots of locations in Colorado where we're blocking, the railroads are blocking crossings for hours and hours at a time because their trains are too long, uh, because they don't have crew strength to go cut uh, those crossings. Like I talked about the caboose, once again, that's where they had a brakeman on the head end and a brakeman on the rear end. When a train was blocking a crossing, those, those individuals would start walking to that location to start making those cuts and opening up those crossings. Uh, with one person now, that's that's extremely hard, especially when you're a 10,000 foot, uh, 14,000 foot train, that's a, a several mile walk one way. So that's a, another major component of our bill. And then some some other things that have came out of the, the East Palestine accident, uh, we saw that uh, there's a requirement for railroads to have enough insurance to cover if they do have an accident here in the state of Colorado to cover for people's lost property, uh, being displaced, the cleanup of the waterway, the environment, uh, all those issues. So that's a, that's a requirement in the bill. And then uh, another requirement is to give uh, union representatives access to railroad accidents and incidents. Right now, when there's an accident or an incident uh, where a member is hurt or a train just derails or they hit a car. As a union rep, I have no 
access to that. The railroad will tell me that I'm trespassing and have me removed. Uh, so this bill will open that door so we can be a part and make sure that uh, our members, the workers we represent, are have a safe working environment. And what is the root cause of a lot of these a lot of these issues that you know for every every train derailment that is a potential for not only injury to the worker but also potential to injury to the public and and other environmental hazards to take place. Well, yeah, and and you you touched on the blocked rail crossings. That's an intersection with some of our other other union members in the in the Colorado professional firefighters. This bill would provide training, safety drills on hazardous materials for first responders. Why do you think that's important? Yeah, right now what we see a lot of times is that first responders respond to an an accident where a locomotive is hit a semi. Uh, they're not trained on how basically use the emergency kill switch to shut off the diesel to the locomotive to prevent a fire. They don't know where to cut with their their jaws of life and their cutting equipment. I have seen where fire departments are fighting a fire or a car accident and have ran their hose over an active rail line. And we saw that just two years ago in Platteville where a police officer put a prisoner in the back of a car that was sitting on active rail tracks, right? And that, that you know, had all kinds of ramifications to the prisoner, to the police officers, there were trials. Um, if we can offer first responders of every level, whether it's police, fire, uh, training on how to identify uh, what's safe, where active tracks are, never park on active tracks, so I'm, I'm sitting here uh, less than a football field away from the railroad tracks in suburban Westminster. You know, it runs through the inner city of Denver, through the suburbs like myself here in Westminster, out to more rural communities, passes through places like you know, downtown Boulder, I believe. So with that connection throughout the state and in places that have politics that are more liberal or more conservative, how have you seen this bill take form? And is this a bipartisan effort? Yeah. So rail safety, whether it's workers or the community, this bill is, is engulfing in all of that. That, you know, trains don't just impact railroads, they impact the communities they go through. So, yeah, this is a, a worker safety and a community safety and environmental safety bill. We are trying very hard to, to get that message across that this isn't a rural versus urban. Actually, there's more trains in rural Colorado than there are in urban urban areas, right? The, the urban threat is, is much bigger. But, yeah, there's a lot of trains. Blocking crossings in rural areas can have much more significant impact on first responders and school buses and communities, so that those are a, a big issue. Uh, this isn't this isn't rural versus urban. This is public safety, train safety. Uh, most every part of the state has trains going through it. Um, downtown Fort Collins is a prime example with numerous crossings. That you know on CSU game day, football day, that's that's a big deal. Downtown Pueblo has lots of trains going through it. We saw what happens when a bridge collapses there. So yeah, that's, we're, we're trying to get the message out. This is a community safety bill, a public safety bill. And in the legislative, 
the, the TLRC, the Transportation Legislative Review Committee, we did get bipartisan support from, from a Republican in that committee. And we're going to continue to work with them and, and you know, come to a, a good understanding with the bill that this impacts lots of different communities, lots of different workers for the safety of all of us. We believe this is a, a strong public safety bill. Yeah, great. And I would encourage our listeners, if you care about rail safety and you want to make a difference to support this legislation, it is as simple as looking up your own state senator and state house representative and uh, giving them a call telling them that rail safety is important in your community and that you support this effort. Those go a long way, especially as you share a personal story. If you've seen a blocked crossing, if it's affected you, don't hesitate to reach out to those you've elected to represent you. We also, the AFL-CIO, are running a program called the Labor Lobby Corps, where rank and file union members advocate at the Capitol. If you're interested, there's an interest form on our website. We could talk with you further about about the possibility of joining us at the Capitol. Carl, as I had just mentioned, this is state legislation inside the state of Colorado. Why isn't this being taken care of at the federal level? Well, actually, Robert, it is being addressed at the federal level. Uh, There's a Federal Rail Safety Act of 2023 that is introduced in the United States Senate. Uh, Several pieces of this legislation are out of the federal safety bill. The problem is in the United States Congress, nothing is going anywhere. So the federal government has a lot of preemption on what states can and can't do when it comes to interstate commerce. We took all the things that weren't preempted out of interstate commerce that were in the rail safety bill that we feel are important and the state of Colorado can act on, the state of Colorado can act, take, take uh, measures to protect their citizens, to protect their workers, protect their environment. And then if the federal bill is passed, then uh, that would preempt any state bill. But this is the opportunity for Colorado to lead and, and address rail safety for everyone. Great. And Carl, you know, I had mentioned our Labor Lobby Corps program where we trained rank and file members to to be active at the Capitol. And, and, you know, I'll give away the secret. Carl and I both put on a suit and have to go down to the Capitol. I'll speak for myself. It's not exactly the most comfortable thing. I'm a, I'm a working class guy. I like to think myself that way. And it is the work that needs to be done. What is it? What's it like dealing with the opposition to things like rail safety when it's your your and your members' lives on the line, or for me, you know, my neighbors and my family's lives on the line? Yeah, Robert, I'm a brakeman switchman. I'm much more comfortable in my bibs than I am in a suit and tie. But I put on a suit and tie because it's important to represent my members and to to be there to speak for this. And and with the opposition, it's a struggle. It's uh, what we think are common sense rail safety, uh, they see that it's going to cost them money. It's going to impact their operations. Uh, it's going to it's going to slow them down and cost them more money. But I mean, we're at a point where the amount of money that they're making and the amount of money they're spending to not only for their workers to provide a safe workplace for their workers, but also to provide an obligation to provide safety for the public since they are traveling through communities here in the state. We, we feel that the, that we're, we're at the, we're at the pinnacle of that. And, but there, the opposition is opposed to that. It's, you know, we're hurting business, we're hurting interstate commerce. Um, but this is about public safety and everybody 
thinks it's not not a big deal until it happens in their backyard. As we get to the close of our conversation, I just want to give you, if you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, it's, you know, rail safety is important as, as we've seen time and time again here recently, as the media is starting to pick up on more and more rail accidents, rail safety impacts, not just workers, but the community can have extreme impact on the environment. And this is the time for the citizens of Colorado to speak up and demand that their uh, legislators and the governor uh, support rail safety, uh, take steps to protect them. uh, And, you know, these are common sense steps to prevent uh, or mitigate future, future accidents. Great. Thank you for that, Carl. Thanks for joining us on the Labor Exchange. You bet, Robert. Thanks again for having us. This has been the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO. And our uh, conversation today has been with Carl Smith, a railroad brakeman switchman currently serving as the Colorado Legislative Director for Smart Transportation Division. This has been the Labor Exchange.